What I want to talk to you about this morning is how I find that every day I develop a deeper love-hate relationship with my addiction to social media. In so many ways, I, like everybody else, loves a little Instagram, some Facebook, and Twitter because it keeps me up to date with friends and family who now live all around the world. I have family in Kentucky and in Texas and in Ireland. I have friends in England and Norway and in Australia, and social media keeps me tied in with them. On the other hand, I find myself trying more and more to limit my time on social media platforms because of the tiny handful of those friends and family who use it chiefly as a safe space to throw out their political ideas and opinions. Sometimes I can see this as helpful. It shows interesting news that I might have missed otherwise. But more often than not, I'm afraid it's just a slightly longer version of a bumper sticker or a flyer for whatever political issue is being thrown at us in this country from a particular news media that these persons may watch a little too much. That's the two sides of the coin, in my humble opinion, of my and our culture's addiction to social media. But every so often, something else happens on Facebook or Instagram. Someone goes on an incredible journey and they do the one thing that I never get tired of. They share photos from their adventure in a place that usually I'd love to be off visiting with them. That's exactly what's been keeping me glued to social media daily the last couple of weeks, thanks to our missing deacon, Mark Richardson, and his wife, Diane. Now, for those of you out there who are living outside the social media sinkhole, good for you. But you may not be aware that Mark and Diane have been away for the last 10 days or so on a -a once-in-a-lifetime journey through the North African country of Egypt. And while they've been on this incredible journey, they have been sharing spectacular photos on Facebook of pyramids, the Sphinx, the museums of Egyptology and the history of Cairo, and some really beautiful boat rides along the River Nile. There's also a photo that I'm going to tell you, when they get back, I'm going to make a mug or a t-shirt out of this because it shows the said deacon apparently enjoying a smoky pull off a hookah pipe with his Egyptian guide. That one is definitely going on a t-shirt. Just wait and see. Yes, I have been praying for Mark and Diane every single day they've been away, praying for their safety and for their protection while they've been traveling in a country most of us Americans would probably be a little too afraid to visit in these our frightening times. And it certainly seems that God has been with Mark and Diane for the whole journey because every photo Mark has posted looks absolutely amazing and as if they are in their element traveling through Egypt. One of the places Mark and Diane aren't visiting in this particular Egyptian trip, chiefly because it's a good distance from Cairo and the Nile River Valley where they are, and also because it is one of the places still on the State Department's travel warning list for American tourists, is the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. Now, I'm bringing up the Sinai Peninsula for two reasons this morning. First, because it is one of the places I personally would love to visit if I ever am able to make my pilgrimage to Egypt. And secondly, because it's the very location 
where our incredible Old Testament reading this morning actually occurred in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. And really, both of these are interconnected because the one place I dream of visiting in the Sinai Desert is the ancient Christian monastery of St. Catherine's. And the whole reason why St. Catherine's Monastery has existed there in the heart of the Sinai Peninsula since around the year 548 A.D., is because it was constructed by Christians around the traditional site of the story of Moses and the burning bush at the very foot of Mount Horab, or as it's better known today, Mount Sinai. It is also there on that holy mountain, as we all know, where Moses would receive the Ten Commandments, fulfilling God's promise to Moses in this morning's reading that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. To visit that holy location in the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt is, I believe, thoroughly. To truly be on the very earth and soil where God told Moses to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Next to Jerusalem, there is just no more important or sacred Judeo-Christian site I can think of than Mount Sinai. And there at the foot of that mountain is where the Exodus story of the Israelites being set free by God from slavery begins. God says, go down, Moses, way down to Egypt's land. And it starts with a bush that appears to catch fire, but is not consumed by the flame. Instead, God is there calling out those words to the shepherd Moses. Now, we've all heard this story before, haven't we? We know the tale of Moses and the burning bush just as we know that Moses once parted the Red Sea and that Moses had a really cool staff that he could drop on the ground and would instantly turn into a snake. What little boy doesn't want that walking stick that can be cast into a snake on command? But I want to encourage you this morning to really go back and read again from Exodus chapter 3. For truly, it is even more strange than you probably remember. I mean, if this had been the Game of Thrones, God would be speaking through some giant frozen oak tree out in the the north country that is set on fire, not a tiny bunch of scrub brush in the desert. But we will soon find out that the God of Israel is not the same as those lesser gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the various tribes around the ancient world. The God who speaks to Moses doesn't need a lot of pyrotechnics and special effects. God moves more directly to Moses using something simple to catch his attention and to get Moses set on the right track. And as God always does, God does this because God wants Moses himself to take some ownership of this important move. Sure, God could do all of this. God could remove the Israelites with one foul swoop. He is God. But God is working to fully transform his people and to not simply operate his creation as if it were a puppet show. God wants to melt their frozen hearts, to shape them back into the living creation that God himself started And through the Israelites and their salvation and exodus begin reworking and saving the whole world, moving that world in the direction of the incarnation of God, which is coming in Jesus Christ. 
So that's how it all begins, with the poor shepherd who's already fled Egypt once before and is working for his father-in-law, Jethro, and a set of important promises that are presented to that shepherd from the burning bush to he who is being chosen by God in that moment to deliver God's message to God's people and to their oppressive slave master, the Egyptian pharaoh. God says to Moses this morning, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we know this story as it is proclaimed right here in the book of Exodus, as the story of God freeing his chosen people, the Israelites, out of their bondage. But if you can read it again now, thousands and thousands of years later, with the story of Jesus inscribed on your heart and in your minds, then you can read deeper and see that this very story is so much more than just the story of the Israelites. It is, in fact, one of the earliest identifiers of God, a God who loves his people so much that God is willing to come down and to save them. This is the heart of God's story throughout the history of salvation. God hearing his people's cry and responding in a way to free us and to bring us to a new country that will be overflowing with milk and honey. Yes, it begins here with the burning bush and with the story of the Israelite people, but we know already where it will end. It will end with a cross and with God's chosen people extending outside of Israel to all the people of God's creation. And let us not forget that that cross really will be as unexpected and as baffling as the burning bush was in the beginning. When we expect to see a God taking out the Romans and the Jewish leadership like some sort of earthly king or divine superhero, instead, God will end up dying as a criminal and as a madman. But just as the burning bush leads to the Red Sea and to the promised land, the death on the cross will lead to something even more amazing. It will lead to resurrection from the dead the life-changing hope for all of humanity, that death itself will in the end be unhinged for those who believe and who choose to take up their cross and follow God and Jesus Christ. And I've always been equally drawn to the intriguing moment when God, from within the burning bush at the request of Moses to tell the Israelites the name of their God, chooses to respond in yet another strange and unexpected way. For unlike the tribal gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, God will not give God's self the name of a being from within creation. God will not go the way of Osiris and Horus and Isis, nor will he go the way of Zeus or Neptune or Baal. For God is not simply something we in our creation even have the ability to apply a name to. 
He is the creator of all, above all the physical and the spiritual beings that carry with them the vast number of human names that we've given from the ancient pantheons. God identifies God's self this way to Moses. God says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And by this moment, we come to know that the Creator God is above all names because He is that which is greater than everything else. So through this amazing moment of God's identity given in Exodus, when we land in John's Gospel in the New Testament, we will begin to hear with our own ears Jesus identifying Himself directly as He who He truly is and completely. And He too will use that same title, I Am, over and over again. For Jesus will say, I am the vine. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, when we delve deeply into the Bible, brothers and sisters, when we soak it in over and over again, when we put it above all of life's other many attractions and diversions, we can begin to see more clearly the important revelations that connect the old to the new, the Torah to the Gospels. God is the great I am, and Jesus will identify himself the same way. And just as Moses freed the Israelites from their suffering and their slavery in Egypt, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the great I am, will give us the hope of being freed from our own suffering and our own slavery of sin and death. And Jesus is continuing to lead all of God's creation through the desert of darkness, the desert of violence and poverty and injustice, which continues to overwhelm this frightening world today. Jesus will continue to lead God's people to that which is a promise of being rich and vibrant, a land of milk and honey where death itself will finally die and will be no more, where God's creation as it was in the beginning will finally be restored completely. This morning, brothers and sisters, in this holy season of Lent, whether you recognize it or not, we are all continuing to walk through the wilderness. Let us never lose heart and never stop working, following the new Moses, the new Adam, the one who is I am God in Jesus Christ, for he will deliver us And He can save you if you just open your hearts to Him. If you just ask for His forgiveness and grace. If you just take up your cross, give up yourself, and follow after Him. Oh, if people would put that up on social media along with their vacation photos and pictures of their family. Wouldn't that be a greater thing to spend your screen time with? Keep up your walk this Lent, brothers and sisters. Keep following faithfully the light that first lit up the bush at the foot of Mount Horeb, the light that in the darkness will be for us the sun. Amen.